Good morning. Oh, it's so good to sing with you all. Where'd Gil go? Gil just disappeared. It was so good to have Gil shouting in my ear. I am ready. I hope your Bible's open to Luke chapter 7, 18 to 35. Let me pray for us one more time. God, we just rejoice in the words we just sung, that those are true words. They're true because Jesus is risen. And yet, Lord, as we wait for the day when he will return, we, we need to continue to live by faith and not by sight. And so we pray that your word now would help us. We pray that, Holy Spirit, these words you've inspired would now be illuminated and applied. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. There is an epidemic spreading across the world. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We're all carriers of the disease. It's called offendinitis. Offendinitis. It's a skin disease. It's a skin condition whereby the thickness of our skin melts away to the point where everything offends us. Symptoms may include hurt feelings, indignation, irritability, disappointment, grumpiness, and an all-around allergic reaction to anyone who says or does something we don't like. Those aren't my words. It's the words of a commentator in Lifehack magazine. It's a fun way of putting it. It is the air we breathe. Political correctness being triggered, microaggression. We know the vocabulary. And what it all comes down to is our easy propensity toward offense. Many of you are probably familiar with the famous... Now legendary exchange between Jordan Peterson and Canadian talk show host Kathy Newman, where she said that she had a right to not be offended. She said something to the effect, if we're going to be able to think, we have to risk being offended. Now this might work in a society where people are sincerely trying to play nice with one another, But how does this work in our relationship with God? C.S. Lewis talked about this in his famous essay, God in the Dock. He said the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are now reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is a quite kindly judge, if God should have a reasonable defense reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. It may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Well, if C.S. Lewis wrote those words in the 1940s, how much more is it the case for us today? In fact, the question has not become Uh, As much, is there a reasonable answer for these things? But is there an answer that does not offend me? 
As we look at this scene in Luke's gospel this morning, we get a snapshot of what faith in Jesus looks like, and we learn it has to be an unoffended faith. And that's the the main imperative for, for us this morning. Don't be offended by God's ways. Don't be offended by God's ways. Three points. In in the surprising kingdom of Jesus, we often get offended because we encounter the unexpected. We have three things that surprise us. We have an unexpected location, verses 18 to 23. An unexpected people, verse 24 to 30. And unexpected wisdom, verses 31 to to 35. So, main point, don't be offended by God's ways, unexpected location, unexpected people, unexpected wisdom. Let's go ahead and read these verses again, verses 18 to 23. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. John's got a question, and it it is the question of all questions, and Luke gives it to us twice, we see, for For emphasis, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. But this is not a theological musing on on John's part. It's bound up, we see, with his location, a location he wasn't expecting. Where is John? He's in prison. Chapter 3, we meet John. He's in the waters of the Jordan River. He's having a successful ministry. The crowds are swarming to him. All sorts of characters getting baptized. And when he was asked if he was the Messiah, John joyfully pointed away from himself to Jesus as the one who was to come. And they were waiting for this fiery Messiah who was going to bring the kingdom and consume their enemies. And yet we read that after John rebuked King Herod because of his incestuous adultery and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else and he locks John up in prison. Now look back at our text. Some of John's guys go to visit him in prison, and Luke says in verse 18 that they told him about all these things. Now, what are these things? Well, it's what preceded in chapter 7. They go, John, we saw Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead. 
John, we saw Jesus heal a Roman centurion's servant. He wasn't even there. He was, he was miles away. He did it with just a word. And we picture John hearing this, saying, yes, this is great. But then as he looks at them through prison bars, he says, wait a minute. Then why am I here? Maybe he even looks over to see a Roman guard and he says, you mean to tell me that Jesus healed the servant of one of those guys with just a word from miles away? He could swing the doors wide open for me right now and let me go. Whatever happened to freedom for the captives? Why am I here? He has an unexpected location. John's experience is not unique. People through the ages have asked, why them and not me? The old dilemma, why do the evil prosper and the righteous suffer? Maybe you've asked before, why does he get the job while I scrape by unemployed? Why does she get pregnant while I remain childless? Why can I never get a break while all the doors seem to open for them? This is life in a fallen, unpredictable world. Now, some think that when they come to Jesus, they can expect everything to start looking up. To, To be saved, they might think they get saved from all that. This experience doesn't exempt Christians either. We see that God chooses to heal some and not others. God lifts the clouds of depression for one and he leaves them over another. God cures the addiction of some and yet others are left wrestling with it. This is what has been called the the already not yet of God's kingdom. Prosperity theology would say God's kingdom is really only already, and all you have to do is have enough faith, repent enough, give enough money, and all will go well for you. Well, how did that work out for John? Jesus says in verse 28 that among those born of women, no one is greater than John. And yet John ends up executed in a dungeon with his head being paraded at a party on a platter. So what are your expectations? Are they in line with God's? Do they submit to the already not yet of God's kingdom? Jesus sends word back to John, verse 22 to 23. He says, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Jesus answers, yes, John, I am the one who is to come, but I might not be coming in the way that you would expect. Jesus shows us here that he is an already not yet Messiah. And whatever location we end up in, whether it is being his followers in the United States or in North Korea, whether it's being his follower when it's pleasant or it hurts, 
whether it's being his follower when the crowds are applauding or the crowds are booing, whether it's being his follower during times of prosperity or pandemic, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This idea of being offended is literally being scandalized. It's coming to a place where you say, God, you got this wrong. I'm not supposed to be here. This is the wrong location. There's an idea in 12-step programs, and it's it's essentially that, that expectations are premeditated resentments. You ever hear that? I love that. Expectations, premeditated resentments. Why? Because nothing goes according to plan. Our expectations are often off. Last summer, it's kind of a funny illustration, but it gets it. I, we were driving down to Georgia, and I, I had this vision of us taking the Blue Ridge Parkway. Anybody travel that before? It's beautiful, right? So I have this America's Most Scenic Drive. I'm excited. This is going to be great. We get on the parkway, and then we find out there's construction going on for miles and miles. We have to get off the parkway. So we, so we get on the highway. I'm irritated. We find a way to get back onto the parkway. It's beautiful, but there we are driving for three hours, going 30 miles an hour. And I need to get my kids to bed. And they're getting irritated, and I'm getting irritated. And what's the problem? Me. I had an expectation of what this would be like that I had no business having. In fact, I remember before the trip, being in a restaurant and a woman saying to me, there's actually construction going on in the Blue Ridge Parkway, so I'm not sure that you can even do it. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good. And she was right. So if anything, my expectation should have accounted for that, but there I am, I'm gripping the steering wheel, and I'm resenting the entire thing. And Jesus is kind of like that woman in the restaurant. He's saying, heads up, there's going to be some bumps ahead. I'm not giving you a crown, I'm giving you a cross. And you have no control over it. The only control that we have is whether we will take the road or try to escape it. John the Baptist could have chosen silence. He could have chosen not to say a word to Herod. He he could have written an apology letter to Herod while he was in prison. But he stays the course, and he, even though he struggles, Jesus challenges him and comforts him. See, he challenges him, and he comforts him. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We live in a culture where people think that they have a divine right not to be offended. And in that kind of culture, our faith in Jesus will be offensive. Just like John the Baptist was offensive to Herod. And what we need to settle in our hearts right now, what we need to ask ourselves is, will we be offended by the offense that our faith poses to others? It might land you in a location you don't like. 
People might misunderstand you. People might misrepresent you. They will slander you. And it will be at the expense of you doing things God's way. I've encountered that as a pastor. Our church has encountered that. I'm sure many of you have. And this church has. If you haven't, you will. Whether in the workplace or the classroom. In your family or in your neighborhood. When it gets uncomfortable, will you be offended? Will you allow yourself to be shut up? Will you distance yourself from Jesus? Hear his words this morning. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Secondly, unexpected people. Let's look at verses 24 to 28. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus uses John's question as an opportunity to say some things about John. What does he say? Does he say that he's a faithless failure? No. He talks about how great John is. Isn't that just amazing? John John just asked a question that didn't make him look very great. John, John doubted. John struggled. John literally asked, are you the one or should I go looking for another? This is like finding out in a, in a great president's biography that he questioned whether democracy was a good idea. This is like finding out that Billy Graham, before he went up to preach, questioned whether he really believed the gospel. John was a follower of Jesus who ended up having some doubts about Jesus. Some of us catch ourselves doubting and we panic. And we think, I might not really be a Christian. We offend ourselves. John is a picture of the unexpected people who make up Jesus' family. And he should be a reminder to us that Jesus' family is a safe place for those who doubt. Jesus is gentle and comforting to those who struggle. And it's a safe place for, G- for, for those who doubt because the resurrected Lord has big shoulders. He can handle it. I think of Jude's encouragement, Jude 22, we ought to have mercy on those who doubt. So here's how this typically goes, unfortunately. Someone opens up about questions they've been having. A doubt that, that's crept in about God and his ways. Perhaps a doubt that they have about themselves. And people hear it and they say, oh boy, well that's that. 
Right? They, and they, and they, they either run away from them or they frantically try to fix them right there on the spot as if that struggle or that question is the all-defining reality about that person's faith. Now, don't get me wrong. Doubt is not insignificant. Doubt, if, if it is left unchecked, can lead to unbelief. But we need to deal with it rightly. The opposite of doubt is not certainty. The remedy for doubt is not bulletproof reason. The opposite of doubt is faith. Isn't that what Jesus said to doubting Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The opposite of doubt is faith. It's being able to look at the mess of the world around you or your own personal life or even your interior life. It's being able to look at the mess and say, I won't be offended by this. My faith is not contingent on a God that I can fully comprehend, but the God who calls for my trust. That was the big hang-up for Larry King. Larry King interviewed dozens of pastors, dozens of theologians, and he would always ask, if you're familiar with his interviews, you know, if God is all-powerful, then why 9-11? Or Sandy Hook? Or Columbine? And he never got an answer. And that's not because there is not an answer. It's because God does not owe us an answer, but he has given an answer, and that answer is Jesus. The question for us is whether that is enough for us to trust him. But God looked upon this sin-soaked, violent world, and he sent a Savior. And that Savior is coming again to make all things right. Will we trust him? Look at what Jesus says about John. He doesn't let John's question be the all-defining reality about his faith. Instead, he points to John's life. And this man was a man of faith. Verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Picture that. He's saying, did you you go out to see a, a fickle spokesman? Right? Who, who goes this way one minute and this way the next. Whatever way the wind is blowing. He, who breaks to the popular opinion. There's a lot of that right now. There's Christians throwing out clear teachings of scripture because it's no longer popular to affirm it. They're like weeds swaying in the wind. That's not faith. That's fair weather religion. Verse 25 he says, what, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes working in a palace? That wasn't John. John was no hireling. He was no opportunist who said what people wanted to hear and did it for the perks. He spoke truth, even when it landed him in a palace dungeon. Jesus says, John's the real deal. And you can tell because of his life. Not just that, but but John is the prophet par excellence. Verse 27. 
were pointed to this prophecy of Malachi. Malachi prophesied about the coming prophet um, who would be like Elijah, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. But Jesus does something that is fascinating here. He actually weds together two verses. He not only quotes from Malachi 3, which says, See, I'm sending my messenger, which was a prophecy about John the Baptist, but he weds to it a verse from Exodus 23:20 when Moses tells the people I'm going to send my angel my messenger before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I've prepared and the you there doesn't refer to God it refers to God's people so what is Jesus saying there let's it's what makes sense of what he goes on to say verse 28 I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Then he says something odd. He says, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. John never saw Jesus crucified. He never saw him raised from the grave. He never saw Jesus ascended to heaven. He never saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He never saw the triumphant spread of the gospel. And like the writer of Hebrews said, all these, John being the last of them, they were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us. It's Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40. They did not receive it, but they were providing something better for us. That is the relationship between John and us. John wasn't just preparing the way for Jesus. He was preparing the way for us. And though John looked forward, and we certainly look forward as well, we have the advantage of looking back. By faith, by the Holy Spirit's enlightenment, by the testimony of Scripture, even by reading the Gospel of Luke, our faith looks forward by looking back. John belonged to the time of promise. We belong to the time of fulfillment. And for that reason, the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist himself. And that includes you this morning, if you're putting your faith in Jesus. Some of you might be going through the ringer this morning. And you're asking the very same thing John was asking. And Jesus says, you're greater than him. Keep putting your faith in Christ. And receive Jesus' blessing. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Unexpected people. Read on in verse 29 to 30 to see the other unexpected people who joined Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom has room for those who struggle and doubt, but we also see this, verse 29. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. So we see two groups. One is offended by God's ways. The other is not. 
One group we would expect, the other group is unexpected. Pharisees, experts in the law of all people, they should be the ones who were ready to receive God's plan for themselves. But what happens? It says they rejected the plan of God for themselves. And then tax collectors, those that we would write off and say, nope, they're not going to be part of this. No, they hear it and they acknowledge God's way of righteousness. God's way of righteousness is the way that he makes for us to be made right with him. We are born into this world not right with God. We, 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 we come pre-programmed just seeking to serve ourselves, sinning. And God has made a way for us to be able to stand before him on the last day and not have it said of us, you are condemned, but to be ha- have it said of us, you are righteous in my sight. It's amazing news that we can be justified, that we can be declared righteous before the judge. But that requires that we come to the end of ourselves. It requires that we be humbled. Why did the the Pharisees reject this and the tax collectors accept it? Notice what Luke says. He notes that their response was seen in their baptism. Baptism is humbling. Just think about what a baptism looks like. A baptism says it doesn't matter who you are. The terms of entry are the same for everyone. Tax collectors heard this and they said, wow. I mean, really, sinners like us can get in on this. We want it. And the Pharisees, they said, who are you calling a sinner? We're not like them. They said, we're, we're God's covenant people, people. We're the rule keepers. We're already in the kingdom. We got the VIP pass. We can just walk in like we own the place. Luke says they rejected God's plan for themselves. We see here that no one is born a citizen of God's kingdom. No one is born a Christian. No one has a right to enter God's kingdom on their own terms. God's plan is that those who humble themselves and by faith receive Jesus, they will enter. And what's the result? A bunch of unexpected people. Every person in this room this morning is a unique story of someone who is either a recovering Pharisee or a recovering tax collector, maybe in different seasons of your life, both of those things. But the point is that Jesus is able to rescue sinners of all shapes and sizes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what you've done or what you're currently going through, or what kind of shame is currently tainting your soul, there is a place for you. And that offends some people. Because it creates communities where people who naturally don't belong together all of a sudden are together. And it creates communities of people that Man, we would want to point the finger at. We now embrace. And they us. We now welcome one another as Christ 
has welcomed us to the glory of God. The result? A display of the kingdom of God in its already not yet reality. So here we are. We are not yet what we will be. Right? We are not yet what we will be. But as we walk alongside one another, we help each other get one step closer to that day. And so, embrace that. Don't be offended by God's ways. He puts you in unexpected locations. He calls to himself an unexpected people and links you to unexpected people. And lastly, he will lead you with unexpected wisdom. Let's consider our third and final point, unexpected wisdom, verse 31 to 35. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Jesus asks a question. He says, how can I describe this generation? What are the people like this generation to be compared to? He gives us a parable. Daryl Bach calls it the parable of the brats. We played the flute. Why won't you dance? We sang a lament. Why won't you weep? The connection here is is made with how they received both John and Jesus. John shows up and they go, whoa, buddy, calm down, chill out. Enough with the doom and gloom. And then Jesus shows up and they say, look at this party animal. Today's a fast day. What's up with the Cabernet and the filet mignon? We, We don't like this. Why did they respond that way? Because they had the wrong expectation of God's ways. Notice the theme of the song that they're singing. Who's in charge? We played the flute. You didn't dance. We sang a lament. You didn't weep. This is a picture of the tension that the church experiences with the surrounding culture. When the world is partying, we're fasting and praying. And when the world is freaking out, we're partying. Like Paul says, we are sorrowful and yet we're always rejoicing. Religious types will say that we're too relaxed and we need to sober up. Your religious types will say we're too uptight and we need to relax. And balanced Christianity will understand when it's time for dancing and when it's time for weeping. And if we get that, we can actually provide a countercultural witness that rejects the stoic religion that so many people want to opt for or the hedonistic irreligion that so many want to offer.
Jesus saves us out of both those places. He says both of those are dead ends, and he gives us a new and better way. This is why expositional preaching is so vital for the health of the church. Because as we immerse ourselves in the whole counsel of God's word, we learn how God's song is so different from the iPod shuffle of our society. It's a song that gives us wisdom to live well in God's world and not be offended when we find ourselves out of sync with what's being sung or played around us. But there's another level of wisdom here as well. Though the Pharisees were uncomfortable with John because his solutions were threatening to their religious pride, the Pharisees had expectations that were way too tame. After years and years, centuries and centuries of waiting, I want you to think about this. The Messiah showed up. Think about that. He actually came. And he made clear in his coming, Jesus made clear that a new age had commenced. Exile has given way to homecoming. Fasting gave way to celebration. But it was as if the Pharisees had grown so comfortable with the dysfunction that surrounded them, they came to think that going through the motions of religious performance was an end in and of itself. And that that was God's plan for them. And Jesus says, wake up. Your Messiah is here. And this word rings out to us this morning to say, your Messiah has come and he will come again. And through the the power of the Holy Spirit, he is here. He's with us and he's in us. And so church, we should not be living like Jesus is still in the grave. We shouldn't live like we are still under the penalty and the power of sin. When you show up on Sunday, the joy that is expressed here should make it feel like heaven has come down to earth. The least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. We can eat and drink, not because tomorrow we die, but because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Verse 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is God's way, and he intends for the church to show that it is God's way. To be the vindication of the message. And when God's children live in a way that embraces his song, we will show the world not just something that's true, but something that actually works. We look around the world and we, we say everything's not all right. But then we also say this isn't all there is. And that changes our perspective. So don't be offended by God's ways. Trust him with an unoffended faith. One day that faith will become sight. As Jai pointed out, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 33, desert. Isaiah 34, garden. One day our faith will become sight. May we have no regrets when that day comes. Let's pray.
Jesus, may we receive your words this morning as a challenge and a comfort. Blessed are those who are not offended by you. Jesus, whether we are in the valley or the mountaintop, we pray that we would take your hand and we would trust you every step of the way. I pray for those who are really feeling it this morning. Lord, be near to them. And may they not be offended by the location that you have landed them in. May they trust you. And God, I pray for for anyone here who does not know you as their God, as their Lord. I pray that they would run to Jesus this morning. And that they would trust him with their lives. Thank you for this word. May we live by faith until we see you face to face. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.